Are you ready to tap in to your power within so that your business can reach its truest potential? Hi, I'm Candace Haza, and I help business entrepreneurs access their inner GPS so that their business can grow and thrive. You are here to serve and to create an impact in this world. Welcome to the Intuitive Business Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode where we're going to learn something about women and preserving our history and leaning into the intuitive side of who our family is, was, and will be, and recording the history of all of that into one actual, what would that be called? Archive? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. (laughs) So here we go. I'm going to introduce a personal friend of mine. She means the world to me. She's helped me to grow my business in so many ways. And she also has a really interesting side to her. And this is what she does. Angela Todd is an archivist, a historian, and an activist. She has always been that girl talking to wise elders in the grocery store, reading women's stories, asking her kid, Hey, where are the women on that Lego spaceship? (laughs) I love that. Always looking for women and seeking their stories. Now she's on a mission to capture women's stories and to preserve them. Her work is shaped by the belief that every woman has a story worth saving. And that history needs the stories of women and others, other marginalized folks to even approach living up to its name. Angela has a bachelor's degree in women's studies, an MA in literary and cultural theories, and did her PhD work in cultural studies. How about that for an intro? Woo, girl. I know. Thank you, Candy. Busy. <laughs> You're welcome. So the first thing as I, I need to talk about, it's the most significant, important thing is talking to your son about supporting <laughs> the mission of Lego <laughs> and bringing women. I actually kind of seriously like this because like, what is that teaching our children? Right. So tell me about how your heart leaned into this mission of my work or the Lego story? (laughs) Well, actually the, the Lego story just reminds me of what an activist that you truly are for women. Like even the Legos should be honored with their story. Right. So actually that's, you're right. They both go together. And when my son was much younger, he just turned 18, but when he was, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, he was obsessed with Legos like many boys are. And he would make these giant spaceships and go and, you know, start cultures and do this and do that. And I'd ask him, where are the women on this spaceship and how are you going to build your culture and build this new, you know, planet or whatever he was colonizing you know you need to account for the women there needs to be a nursing room on your spaceship you need to think forward (laughs) about where women are going to be in this society and he'd get the eye roll but I think it's a really important question for all of us to consider is 
how women are half of the society, right? And historically, of course, we haven't been half of history. And I am on a mission to save women's stories and also get other women to save their own stories. I feel like it's a big job in that it's not history without us. So I've seen and heard people talk about how women's history is also American history. And I want to kind of flip that upside down a little bit and say, it's not American history without us. It's not that we want to be part of your club. It's like this club is incomplete without women in it. And so I'm on a mission to kind of spread that and push that agenda. Well, the first thing I want to really acknowledge, Angela, is... I believe there's been a turn right about now in our culture. And I really do, you know, even in government, we're seeing more and more and more women. And so I think that you were very proactive in your mission. Like Mm -hmm. here it is. I, I believe women have arrived in this moment. Definitely. And that is a great lead into my next little thing that I want to flip on its head, which is the saying that the future is female. Yes, what you just said points to it. I feel it in my heart. I hope that it's gonna come to fruition this time. But the past is female too. We just aren't done telling about it. And so although I'm excited for the future, I'm not done with the past yet. And I don't think any of us should be because there are a lot of ways that the way big structures or big decisions in government get worked out on families, women are in the perfect position to tell all of those stories. And Angela, I also, this is beautiful, by the way, I'm really enjoying what we're talking about. So thank you for number one, for being an activist for women. The next thing I want to lean into in this moment is some of us are sitting there with families right now. And families that may have had interesting stories. And guess what? You, the listener, might be the last ears that have heard those stories. And you have a good sound mind if you're listening to this right now and understanding what we're talking about. But here's the challenge. People go away. And that's been a really hard lesson. I just celebrated my 60th birthday And when I think about the people that I've lost, and Mm. then I'll think about a story and I'll think, now, what year was that? Or was that my dad or my uncle said that? And I'm starting to actually get things mixed up. But the sad part is I don't have a lot of doors to knock on anymore to recapture that. So if that's kind of laying heavy on your heart, what I'm saying right now, I want Angela to help us in this moment. And tell us some things that we can do as women with stories in our history that are fascinating. Oh, that's such a big question. And that question is exactly what my whole business is about. And so I want to say a couple of things about that. One is that an oral history is the most fun way to unload and save those stories, I think. And I'm happy to work with anybody that feels the desire to even just do a one-off, right? Just make your little list of the three things your uncle said, and we can just record it easily. Now just pause for a minute. I want you to hear what she just invited you to do right now. If they're listening, what are three things, like three points that they could think of how, like, how would they get to go about doing that? 
to start saving your whole family history, there are just three things you need to think about. One is the oral history part that we've started to talk about. One is the papers that will support, if you can support the stories that you're telling. And one is the photographs that you have. And so Candy, you and I have done your family history together. And do I have your permission to talk about that? Please share it. I have goosebumps (laughs) all over. Just, I mean, this is so warms my heart because family is, you know, family in our, and where we came from is so significant. And most of the people that are listening to this are high performing business entrepreneurs, either men or women. So to hear this, especially the, the women, this is what Angela is speaking of right now. And so we're going to talk about collecting our oral history, papers to support the story and photographs. So let's talk about the The perfect storm of history, (laughs) photos, documents, and oral history. So when we worked together, there are some things that we did. So we talked to one of your aunts a couple of times and recorded it. And Aunt Patty said, you know, I don't have a lot of people to tell these stories to. And it was a very emotional moment for all three of us, I think, because we were really capturing important information from the generation before you. So one of the things about oral history is the gift that it gives everybody that's involved. Oh, that's really precious. You know, for the people that you can't buy anything for them and right now in their lives and they're downsizing and getting rid of things like, you know, that grandma's house that you go to and always gives you a trinket because she doesn't want to throw it out, but it had meaning, but they don't want any more trinkets. They're like, they're done collecting. Right. And so what a great thing to help them to, you know, organize their paperwork and to be able to share their, her story. Mm hmm So that was one part of our work together was talking to your elders and getting new information, solidifying what we were seeing. Actually, we did some traditional genealogical work too. And we were curious about, you know, who was living together and why. And it was a mystery, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And Aunt Patty helped us clear all that up and say, oh yeah, I remember this and that happened. And so even though when you look in, the big sweeping cultural records that are kept automatically like census records, it's not always clear. And so your elders can help clear that up. I want to stop right there because I want to go through this, this process, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. And we'll continue, but I, I want really to unpackage and unfold what can happen during this, this journey that you could take with Angela. So the first thing that happened is, you know, I knew I had these documents and I knew some of the history of the family. And one of the big pieces of history was my endearing grandfather. We called him Jetto John. And there were 36 of us as grandchildren. And there was only one of the 36 that knew our birth grandfather, Michael Ballant. And Michael died at the age of 42 of what they called black lungs disease. Back then in the day when they would lay, he was a bricklayer. And so he would go inside the steel mills and he would lay the brick of this. It was a big circular. Like an oven, right? An oven, Wasn't it right. a big firing area? Right. And so what would happen is they would crawl into these basically holes and lay brick, but all the brick powder would come up into their lungs and 
back then they didn't use masks and they didn't have protective gear. So that cement particle made his lungs hard. And so eventually he couldn't breathe. So traditionally back in the Slavic culture, which that's what my family was from. If you left, if you were an unmarried man and your best friend died and still had children, women, and this really fits in nicely with your activism, you know, how, how you protect and help women with their stories is, you know, women were very vulnerable. I'm trying to think what, what year this would have been, but I think it was the forties, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess it was the forties. What ended up happening is that my grandfather raised all of us, all 35 of us. He took the place of my grandfather, Michael Ballant. He was his best friend. And so he married my grandmother. Now he really always loved Irinka. That's what I call her. It was my Irinka. He, he just loved her so, so much. And while Angela was helping me to uncover what really, like where specifically, you know, he came from in his travels. The first thing that she did was make me put gloves on. Now these are like our family documents that we looked at. And I, and she looked over at me and she goes, Candy, this passport of your grandfather's is almost a hundred years old, but because it's been in my family, you know, I'm 60 but this document came many years before I was born and I'm starting to realize this is really significant information. Mm. So tell me a little bit, if you remember anything about how you walked me through some information in the passport that I never Ooh. thought about. Yes. There's so much that I want to say. First is when we hear statistics about black lung, that's usually the punchline of the news story or the punchline of the historical remembrance or whatever. But what we're learning in this interview, you and I, is the fallout from that fell to the women and families, right? So when men passed from black lung, we need to continue that story and who's left behind to tell it is the women. So that's one thing. Ooh. The other thing is, when we looked at the passport, as I remember, we were wearing nitrile gloves. I don't like the cloth ones. I think they uh, allow you to rip more easily because you lose sensitivity on your fingertips. But we were looking at the passport and it was stamped from every port that he was in, every country that he stopped on his way from Slovakia mm -hmm. to America. So we could see the exact timeline where he stopped for, I don't remember the cities, but for example, he stopped in Paris and then he went to England or Spain and then he was on the other side getting into the Atlantic Ocean and then he came into New York. And so we were able to really trace how long that took and where he stopped along the way and imagining that journey. Mm -hmm. And that one document has a photo of him, all the stamps, it has his signature. You can tell a lot about a person from their signature, even if it's just a feeling, right? So I'm not a handwriting analyst or anything like that. But it was really amazing for me to get to know Jetto John. Do you remember any feelings that you got? Like this is an intuitive business podcast. Do you remember any intuitive feelings that you got from looking at his signature? The passport itself made me think about 
a hundred years ago, you couldn't phone ahead or send an email, but the bravery to just step out into you don't know what. It's like, I felt like stepping off the edge of the earth or something. And so that felt very, to me, it seemed amazing and frightening and brave. And the signature seemed so sure in the face of that, you know, because he would have been signing the passport knowing that his next step was starting this journey and hoping that he made it. Not everybody made it to America. So it was, yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. So when Angela was speaking of me talking with my aunt Patty and being able to share stories, if it's okay with you, Angela, I want to share some things that happened to me through this journey. Now, remember for me, this is like, this was family history. I didn't think we were going to discover anything. I really wasn't looking to discover anything, to be honest. I just felt um, a responsibility to the family that I had inherited these things and in my hand that were, you know, how many people have these documents? You know, this is a hundred year old document from my history. And I felt like I had a responsibility at this age of my life to do something with it. So what I didn't expect to happen is some of these things. So the first thing we were, we had boxes and boxes of pictures. And the first thing that I didn't realize is that one of the pictures was of his daughter. So let me tell you a backstory about my Jenna John. And this is what Angela helped me to discover, right? And mm-hmm. yep. It was amazing. It was And it was another big emotional moment for me because it spoke so much to the man that we discovered. Take it away, Candy. So we discovered a few things. First of all, when he left Slovakia, things were really getting difficult. Now, I only know this from my husband's grandmother, but like one day she, she had an accent that sounded German, but she was also from Slovakia. So my children literally have all Eastern European roots. And what she would share with us is that one day the government would come in and say, you speak German. The next day you would speak Austrian. The next day, like, so there were different things that would, they would come into school to these children and say, now today's, you know, the ABCs would be taken down and the other things would be put back up basically in one day's time. So things were very tumultuous in that culture during the time of my husband's grandmother, as well as my grandfather. So he decided to leave and he decided to leave and to go to America and to bring his wife back to America. Well, by the time he got to America, his wife had discovered that she was pregnant with their first child. And he was thrilled and excited to, to see, you know, his daughter and his wife, but she had to go through the pregnancy. Very soon after she delivered the baby, she passed away. And so he and the grandmother, who was now going to be the mother of this baby, did not want to travel and had no desire to travel to America. Or to send the child, right? No, he wouldn't send the child. Obviously, it was an infant and, you know, travel back then probably wouldn't have been easy. So what he made a decision to do is he started to send the family money each and every week. And so 
I have documented these checks and they have the gateway clipper, which is one of those boats that have the circular paddles on the back. So he would actually go and get these checks. I don't know what exactly that they were. And then he, he would sign them and he would send them. And some of these checks back then, do you remember somewhere like 200 and some dollars back then? Which a hundred years ago was a lot of cashola. Yes. So what, what ended up happening is he instructed his grandmother to purchase land. And so they purchased land in Slovakia and, but the government eventually seized all of it, but they were living like very wealthy people because of my grandfather, you know, like they were really, really doing well. And I didn't know all of that. Like I didn't know that he had this really deep relationship with his daughter. And then there were pictures of her. And then there were these other pictures here. They were his grandchildren. Like he actually got to see his grandchildren over the course of time. Although he had never met his daughter in his lifetime. That's a strong, strong family background. I mean, that's a strong commitment for him to make to both families. And it's, I want to ask you actually how you internalize that. Because one of the things that family history can do for us is give us a real sense of what we've endured, what we've survived, what we've overcome, or what we succumb to and we want to overcome it now. What I feel is that, you know, my, my Jenna John, he just gave us all a normal life. You know, he Mm. was so loving and so gentle, the most gentle spirit I've ever met. He actually wanted to be a priest and I have his Bible. That's very well worn. You can't really open it anymore because it's literally falling apart, but it's Mm -hmm. in his ethnic language. And I just, I saw him and even like, now I'm getting emotional, but even a more broader light, like I knew he was a good man, but can you imagine like just the honor and integrity of supporting that family? So he, he saved my grandmother and all of us in a lot of ways. My grandmother was very smart and she was very savvy with money and she was not afraid to work hard. And she brought tenants in the house back then. So back then they had borders and the still mill was across the street, basically. So there would be people traveling from all over because these were really good jobs back then and really good jobs weren't easy to find. So people would stay and work extra shifts and live in town. And so the elderly women would Um, get like two borders and they would pay rent and depending on if they wanted laundry, food or whatever, or just housing. And so most of her borders, when I was growing up, she only let them stay there. She didn't do laundry. She didn't do food for them. So she was a smart woman. She was taking care of herself, but just seeing my grandfather in that special light, just it really changed something in my heart for him. Like I always adored and I always loved him. He was like a quiet, just a quiet man. He, he'd like be, be, give me whiskey. He would say, <laughs> be, give me whiskey. And it, when my grandmother, he never drove and my grandmother drove, he goes, 
Irinka, let's go in the machine. He called the car, the machine. <laughs> so it just made my heart sing even more. So thank you for that discovery. It was pretty amazing. I have to say, figuring out who the pictures were of his daughter and grandchild, grandchildren. It was, it was a nice surprise, I think, for the family to find yeah. that connection was still so strong and we had so much evidence of it. Oh, yes. And so in this moment, I want you to imagine this old Bible that you have in your house or this old, these old documents or these old letters that you don't even understand because most of us as Americans some of us are only a couple generations out of our ethnic background. Like in my ears, in my home, there was Slovak. They spoke Slovak, you know, that's what they spoke. And um, now my children will never hear that. Right. So back then, you know, be American, use English language. Like they wouldn't entertain their uniqueness or their ethnicity, I'd say, you know, Bambi, you know, help me to speak your language. And she probably didn't want me to for a multitude of reasons, but she said, no, no, no. She said, we speak English. She never spoke her language outside of the home ever. Which is, I think, common. Yeah. And so, and it makes our jobs to try to retrace those steps and collect that information all the harder, right? That strong cultural impetus to assimilate, right? It was a sign of your success to be seen as American. And so to go back and then kind of dig below that a little bit is all the more sweet because it's so tender and so rare. But I want to also talk a little bit, and I know that you're open to this because you've done another podcast on it. I want to talk about the oral history that we did about your birth mom, Mm -hmm. because you and I were talking a little before our interview started. And I find with a lot of adopted people, the only evidence that they have of the process of adoption, of meeting a birth parent, of the search, the only thing they can offer as evidence is their testimony, right? Mm -hmm. And so the story of meeting your birth mom can really only be captured through the oral history. And some people may have a photo. I can't remember if you do or not. Do you have a photo of your birth mom? I have literally one photograph of the two of us, only one, because my mother died so quickly after we met. Mm-hmm. Um, the camera where all the pictures were taken was lost. So we have one picture and I have no makeup on. I'm not dressed very nicely. And it is literally the only picture I have of my mother and I together from that one and only meeting. That's amazing. That is amazing. We never know what's going to happen with the documents, right? And the other thing about doing the oral history now, like with your Aunt Patty, and this does not apply. Aunt Patty's still with us, but I've done a lot of oral histories with folks' parents that have passed on and they, they love going back to just listen to the sound of the parent's voice. Mm-hmm. And for one family in particular, their grandmother has a very mysterious background and not a lot of people don't know much about it. So we'll say it's Grandma Jane. So Grandma Jane doesn't show up in the census records. She kind of pops up into the records, has a couple of children, and then passes away. 
So Jane's daughter, we'll call her Mary, has also passed. But Mary had 10 kids. And so we're trying to solve the story of the grandmother, Jane. And I've said, listen, you 10 kids have to get together and talk about what anybody remembers mom said about her mother. So the moment is still there, but it's just this tender, thin little thread that they can still follow up on. Yes. If they get together and try, you know, jog each other's memories. And when you get together with another person or two or three, or in their case, 10, um, you know, you can really kind of feed off of each other and remember together. And it can be really beautiful and moving. Oh, yes. I really think that it is. And, and, you know, like I said, I, I found out so many beautiful stories and what, one other thing when you were talking and how many of you out there may have had this experience. I remember my grandmother, my nanny, who was on my father's side, and there wasn't a lot of history there. They were, you know, on that side, they were, you know, farmers and they lived in Ohio. But my grandfather, Pop-Up, Olaf Chapman, he was Native American. And I have a picture of his grandmother and she was 100% Native American. And you can see it in the picture but we don't know anything about that at all. Like what tribes they were from, you know, from, because, you know, you figure my grandfather right now probably would be about 120. Right. Cause my dad would have been like 80, 88 right now or, or 90. I think my dad would have been 90 this year. Wow. So think about how many years ago that would have been really significant. Mm-hmm. Here's what I see about the native American connection. A lot of white families have the story in their background about the Native American princess. A lot of African-American families say, you know, I'm not totally African, or they have the the story in their family. We're part Native American. And combine that with how hard it is to document Natives in America, because, for example, I have that myth in my family. I don't know if it's a myth, because there's a woman who has no records, right? So she has a first name, but there are no records for her. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to confirm or deny it. And at the same time, a lot of us do have those, you know, we aren't racially pure by any stretch. Not at all. 99 times out of 100, you know, there are families that are pure Irish or pure Slovak and they go back whatever, But there's so much mixing and so much story suppression about that mixing that those stories are exciting to uncover when we can. Absolutely. I wish I knew more about it. I do think my cousins have documents like in the, the, what's that called? The site that you go on to? Mm Ancestry.com or I have a, uh, my heritage is another one. There are a bunch of those sites. Yeah. So I think my cousin Dawn and my cousin Marcy. They documented that, but I wanted to say one more thing about my nanny. So there was pop-up. He was on my dad's side. He was native American and you could see it in there. Like you could totally see it. He had the highest, strongest cheekbones. And during the summer, they would get this beautiful color in their skin, both my dad and my pop-up and all my uncles, it would be this beautiful type of brownish golden red. It was the most attractive tan. I mean, they they would get really dark in the summer and it was really beautiful. 
And then my nanny, that was my pop-up's wife. One time when she was in the nursing home, she was telling me that her grandfather, she remembers sitting on the floor, listening to civil war stories. There's that thread again. Yes. Through her ears. Like, like that to me was so significant. And I wished I would have been able to capture more in that moment because of course now she's gone. So if you're listening today, make sure that you connect with Angela. And I, I know that we're going to talk a little bit more, but how, what's the first thing while you're, you're listening, why don't you go capture this on Angela's website? Can you help them, Angela, to get yes. some information? So if you, if you go to my website, which is www.angelaltodd.com, Turns out there are a lot of Angela Todd's who knew. So I have my middle initial, AngelaLtodd.com. And there's a white button in the middle of the page that if you sign up there, you'll get a one page sheet on the best way to start your archive. Just a list of the things that you should be saving along with your photographs. And then at the bottom, there's a little list of what not to bother saving, which is just as important, right? (laughs) So tell us one thing that you shouldn't save. Well, it's all about context, right? So there's no reason, for example, to save those five years of National Geographic that you've been thumbing through. I know, (laughs) unless you're a writer that's been featured in it. That's the years that you were the editor. You were a photographer that's in there. Unless it's issues about your town or something that's related to you in a particular way, there there could be a reason to save some of them if they relate to you in some way or your family. Um, but by and large, yeah, you don't need to save those. <laughs> save that. Angela, I want you, so while you're over there capturing this on her website, and by the way, I just went there and there's, like three or four, it's an, an old type of picture. It's like a black and white and there's a big white button and just click that so that you can get the information. So the next time that you spend a holiday, which we have one coming up pretty soon, either Passover or Easter for some people, you might be able to bring this along just to start some conversations. Mm-hmm. And now that we have all these recording devices, make sure that you're recording them as well so that you know you could put them on a zoom or something like that to uh, capture some of this information because i just think that this is so important one of the other things i wanted you to talk about you were going to say something go for it well i have been working with this family that's saving you know five generations of their immigration story from russia and they are a jewish family and they had a seder on zoom and i said ah that's fantastic did you record it no So if you're already doing it, that is fantastic. Just hit the record button. I love that. I know. (laughs) So here's something that Angela taught me that I didn't even think about. So remember I was talking about living in a still mill town, like crucible still mill was there and I can't get still mill. I can't say it right anymore because of my background. (laughs) Steel mill. (laughs) Good job. Anyways. So I lived in this town in Beaver County. And of course, that's where my grandfather came and worked and everything. But once you hire somebody or work with somebody like Angela, and she teaches you how and why and to organize all your files and 
and you know, this, the paper that won't destroy the other paper, et cetera. Angela, tell us a little bit about ways to put this into the real archives so that you're actually creating history so that once you're gone, somebody could actually find your family story in like courthouses or, or whatever. So help us understand as an archivist, what that really means. So pretend like we've captured all the stuff now. And now what do we do with it? Okay. So to preserve it is one project that you can do at home to house your photographs in acid-free housings that have passed. It's called the PAT test. And I think it's photo acidity test or something like that, but they sell it everywhere. And archival is not a regulated term. So you need to look for something that swears that it's past the PAT test. And that will save them for hundreds of years longer than, for example, those sticky photo albums. Remember that with the, and it would hold the pictures in place. I still have some that need to be processed out of there. So to save them longer in your home, that's the first step. Some people want to keep their papers in the family. That's okay. But be sure they're preserved to last longer. The next step is to find a public repository for them. And there's such a wide array of experiences and possibilities for the places that your papers can be saved. So in Pittsburgh, we have the Heinz History Center. And that would that's a place that I have place somebody's archives and they were very involved in local government and lots of neighborhood committees and ran for local elections and that kinds of stuff. If you've gone to college, then you might have an alma mater that would be interested in your spectacular career based on the education they gave you. If you have a collection that's thick in you know, cultural reprints from art shows and things in your neighborhood, then a local historical society would be a good place. And one of the services that I provide, I just finished working with a woman who was big in the NAACP and rose up to, I can't remember if she helped found it, but she did rise up through the ranks to become secretary and president. And so when there are national topics in your collection, it's great to find a place that has other things related to that. So there are some places in her state that also have NAACP holdings. And so having them together makes their collection stronger and your collection stronger. So it's a win-win. And I'm happy to you know, help place anything that anybody has. So what Angela really is saying and inviting us to is Think about your history being captured in a place that somebody is going to see. I mean, eventually I'm sure that those documents are somehow going to be scanned and, you know, they're going to continue to capture our history mm-hmm. and you can actually become part of history by just going through your gentle documents and creating, like Angela said, some oral history, et cetera. Angela, you just gave me an idea. Angela mentioned earlier, I was adopted and where I was actually born was in Pittsburgh and I was born at Rosalia and it was a fondling home for unwed mothers. And that's where I was born. And I lived there for three months after my birth until May 1st, I was born February 5th. And then May 2nd, I was officially adopted. So 
what's kind of cool about that is there's a whole history. Like if you right now, if you wanted to go and look at this rosalia.com, it was, it's now, um, a, used for a different function, but I see that you can tour it. What I would love to do is to come to your area sometime and maybe bring Curtis so he could video the experience and I'll make a a movie about, you know, like a video, a home video about me seeing Rosalia again, because I, I know it's weird. I was only three months old, but I have some, I don't know if it's because of my intuition, but I have some very light memories of that time. I can, I see a green crib, like a green metal crib. So I don't know if that's my imagination or if that's, you know, you figure I spent three months looking at the green, you know, crib. So, um, it was like a metal bar type of thing, but I'd love to go there and see where I was actually born because my birth mother, Jerry said that right before they gave birth, they were restricted from taking care of the children, but who took care of the children were the women that were pregnant, the young teens that were pregnant. So here's this woman having to face giving her baby up, but being required to take care of babies while all of her hormones were at their peak. I can't imagine how difficult that would have been. And then she said on president Kennedy's inauguration day, she was peeling potatoes in the kitchen, which makes sense. Cause it's usually what the 27th or the 28th of January, I was born February 5th. So they took her off of baby duty and put her into the kitchen duty. So she said she was listening to the inauguration while she was waiting to give birth and peeling potatoes. And she remembers that. So I feel extremely moved by this story because, again, like we hear about women that are not allowed to marry who they want, not allowed to have their child sent away to a home for unwed mothers. And that's where the story ends. And the information that we just learned about your mom, your birth mother's experience in that home, I feel like is a completely untold story. I mean, I haven't done the research. You may be able to find some information or some, you know, books about it or whatever, but that's not part of our historical document Mm -mm. regularly. And in the way that your poor birth mom was, it feels like everybody else was making her decisions. Yeah. You know? Well, it was. And then She said, then she told me another really significant thing that none of us ever knew. And I said to her, my social worker was Mrs. Buca. And she said to me, oh my gosh. She said, right before, right after I had you, Mrs. Buca took me to lunch. Now, Mrs. Buca was actually my father's relative. So my social worker handpicked a family for me, knowing that she was my relative. And so she took Jerry to lunch and she said, honey, she said, you've made this decision. You've spent your time here. She said, you can have three months to make your decision to sign this baby away, you know, or whatever they said. That's, I mean, it was harsh language back then. Mm -hmm. And she said, where you could sign it today. 
And so Jerry signed the paperwork at lunch that day, relinquishing her right and her custody of me as my mother that day at lunch. And she said, I just want to go home. And Mrs. Buca made sure that she was sent home right away. So that's part of the story was that she relinquished her right three months prior to when she needed to. But why Mrs. Buca was doing that is my mom was really struggling. The one that raised me, Mm -hmm. it was very invasive to adopt a child. They would come into your home unannounced. And my mom was compulsively like OCD clean and I'm not being facetious. So they'd come in with white gloves. And if the house was not dirty enough, they would say, how can a child live here? So my mom was to a breaking, um, an emotional breaking point. The one thing that she wanted so desperately was a baby. And the one thing that was going to be in her way was this lady with white gloves. And so I think why Mrs. Buca took my birth mother, Jerry, and made sure that the paperwork was signed is that I don't know that my, if Mrs. Buca gave my mom that baby and anything happened to be taken away from her, I don't think my mom could have lived with that. And that's why they wait three months is because that mother has a birthright for that child and how horrible it would have been to wait 10 years. Like my mom did, um, you know, my, the mother that raised me and then to be given this baby for somebody to take the baby away. So, but that was a part of the story that nobody knew that Mrs. Buca was my relative. Right. Right. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. And you're right. You know, I have a family member that was adopted. A a best friend's partner was adopted and it's all the three month mark. And I didn't know why. Yeah. Because it's, you have three months to claim your right. They gave me to my, you know, my family three days early, but my mother had signed away her rights almost three months prior to that, which was good for everybody. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. But the sad news was for my birth mother, she was never able to give birth after me. So when I met her, I was her only child. And so Angela helps you to uncover these magnificent hidden secrets and stories with oral history, with papers to support it, and with these beautiful photos that you have shoved somewhere in a closet or a drawer. So I'm inviting you today on the intuitive business podcast to bring life to your family's history and also to find golden nuggets of information that you don't know. It's almost like a moment of having, it's like rising from the dead, kind of, you know, like a story that's hidden and buried, but you get more from somebody who's already gone. And I'm just so grateful that I took this journey with Angela and I'm so inviting each and every one of you to go to her page, Angela L And there's a white link that'll give you your three things to know what to save. And then the next holiday or make it a special event, get everybody together and start talking or, you know, this is a good time still, if your families aren't getting together 
to go and do a zoom call and record it and then reach out to Angela and say, what can we do with this whole hot mess that we created? <laughs> and she will make it pristine, organized and put it in an archive so that future generations can learn about the real history of our generation. I can also come in earlier. So I do have a client that wanted me to interview her dad and she said, I don't want to be there because we're not getting along, but I know I'm going to miss him. <laughs> so the, the book is wide open. I can do anything. And the other thing I wanted to talk about just briefly, Candace, is that I know that when you are doing an Akashic healing, you release us from transgenerational imprinting. And I wonder if you could just say a few words about the connection between that block release and if knowing your history has helped with that block release, either as you experience it or as you teach it. Oh, absolutely. So I want to talk about it from an experiential way. So just meeting my birth mother, you know, I met her when I was 33 and this was all history, right? The whole history. When I met her, that was such a healing moment because I never thought about the fact that she wanted me, Yeah, you know, she and my father wanted me. I always felt an initial rejection and it's something that if you're adopted and you're listening, you, you feel me, right? It's nothing you can explain. It's not logical, but something deep within me felt broken and even though I was loved more than I could ever even imagine, my parents were the highest and best that you possibly could have had for me. They probably were too good to me. And in those moments of discovering this history, I began to heal. I began to heal from the feelings of being unwanted and knowing that I really was wanted. It just, the circumstances didn't lend themselves to to having me. It wasn't a meant to be. And so my life journey, now that I've looked at the history of it was all perfectly meant to be. And some of the pains I carried in my heart have now taught me how to be better at what I do in the Akashic records. Because when I see that, that blemish in our records, that mm -hmm. it's like a little, a little spot. And once we're releasing that, I can understand the emotions behind a lot of those spots in our Akashic field that need to be released in order for us to feel more full, more alive, more vibrant, and more aligned with our purpose. And so your work has helped me to do that. So thank you. And your work has helped me in the same way. We make a great team. <laughs> we do. So thank you so much for being on this podcast today. And I hope you've all enjoyed this intuitive business podcast. Remember Angela L Todd.com and get your document to begin your journey into the history or the history of you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I hope that you feel more connected to your power within and that you take action from the guidance here today. For more information, please head to CandiceHaza.com where you will find more resources to help you and your business grow to the next level.